Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, as the President of the United States prepared to travel to Morocco for a wartime conference, his closest advisor and confidant wrote some notes about just why Franklin D. Roosevelt was going to make the arduous trip. FDR, wrote Harry Hopkins, was going to Casablanca because he wanted to make a trip. He was tired of having other people, particularly myself, speak for him around the world. He wanted to see our troops. He was sick of people telling him that it was dangerous to ride in airplanes. He liked the drama of it. But above all, he wanted to make a trip. What Churchill called the most important Allied conference took place over 10 days in January 1943. A strange combination of resort accommodations, barbed wire, anti-aircraft guns and sandbags, a no-holds-barred exchange that was part summer camp and part strategic seminar laid out plans for the next year of war and the years to come. Its consequences can be felt in the politics of today. James Conroy describes the antecedents to the conference, the lengthy trip to get there, and what happened in his new book, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. A practicing lawyer until 2020, James Conroy's first book, Our One Common Country, was a finalist for the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. His second, Lincoln's White House, shared the Lincoln Prize. James Conroy, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So let's begin with the Casablanca Conference and the 25 to 50 word description of what it was since, as we were talking about before we began, this is amazingly the first ever book devoted solely to it. Yet it's an extremely important event, as I indicated in the, in the introduction. Well, yes, it was. In, in essence, um, the tide of the war had just begun to turn from sheer defense on the Allied part to the beginning of the offensive phase. And uh, Churchill and Roosevelt decided that they needed to get together with their combined high command to decide what to do next. That's the essence of it. So there, um, there we'll get to this gallery of personalities that you go through and how you were able to keep them all straight. <laughs> they're, they're an amazing number of names. Mm -hmm. uh, that you had to cope with and bios that you had to cope with and most importantly, personalities and the interplay of personality that you had to cope with. Let's uh, name check a couple of these people, uh, six or eight of them. Um, we'll leave the big ones for the next phase, but let's go with some of the people who were enormous titans of their time and who are now forgotten. Let's start with the Americans. Uh, Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins was uh, FDR's right-hand man, uh, more than first among equals. He was really uh, an alter ego to FDR, a brilliant guy, uh, eccentric character in very bad health. Uh, but uh, he came along with FDR, uh, who could basically not function without him. Um, if FDR had friends, which I, I sometimes doubt now after reading your book, Harry Hopkins is the closest thing he has to a friend. Uh, probably so. Yeah. Yeah. Friend and, and advisor. Yeah. Yeah. George Marshall. 
uh, still well known, but st- but not as well known perhaps as he should be. Yeah, I think Marshall's probably better known for the Marshall Plan than anything else, which was four years uh, after the war, or several years after the war under the Truman administration. But he was the uh, the uh, chief of staff of the army at the time, the most senior uh, officer of the army, uh, and um, a very, very uh, highly regarded, highly respected man with a tremendous presence, you know, just took command of a room by walking into it. Um, not the most brilliant uh, guy you'd ever run into, but very steeped in his profession and um, a careful, uh, thorough thinker. Careful and meticulous. Yep. yep. Um, among other things, uh, had I, if I recall correctly from the First World War, had been the major who put together an operations plan for the Meuse-Argonne offensive in like 48 hours. Yeah, yeah um, so that maybe not a, maybe not a genius, but my God, who, I mean, who could really do that in any army? It's uh, pretty impressive that he did that. Um, he was a Ernest, great organizer. He was a terrific organizer, is what he was. Yeah, yeah. Ernest King. Ernest King is quite the character. He was the chief of naval operations and the commander of the fleet. Uh, two uh, officers that had never been combined in one person before, by far the most powerful naval officer in American history. And um, I say in the book uh, that the country was blessed and cursed by his leadership. Uh, There was no more brilliant naval strategist than Ernest King. And uh, basically everybody he dealt with despised him personally, Um, beyond tough and difficult. Um, he was obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. Very, very hard guy to deal with. It's, it's kind of amazing he made it through the ranks. You talk about his his habit of uh, adultery with f- fellow officers' wives, right? Which usually eventually gets you, you know, the, stopped at some point in your promotion. Court martialed, yeah, <laughs> or court martialed at the time, yeah. yeah, yeah, or or or, or horse whips or something. I mean, right. this is this early twentieth century. Those things can happen. Uh, but somehow he still managed to rise despite being a really, you know, he really comes across as a nasty character in your book. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's just you. Well, Eisenhower wrote in his diary that one way to win this war might be to get somebody to shoot King. <laughs> um, uh, everybody hated King, really, uh, for very good reason. Um, I don't know how far we can go here with language, but um, go ahead, go go for it. Apple yeah. keeps rating me as explicit, so I, I, even though I'm not, so uh, might as well let's earn that rating. Well, to give you the the sense of of Ernie King, um, FDR's naval aide, who was a very highly respected guy, uh, had a conversation with King, and King said, "You only have one flaw as a naval officer," and he said, "Well, what's that?" And he says, "You're not a son of a bitch." To be a good naval officer, you have to be a son of a bitch. So that's Ernie King. What's another? Who's another American participant in this that you that we might not know about, but we should? Um, well, um, Averill Harriman, I think, mm-hmm. used to be much better known than he mm-hmm. is now. But he yep. was a future governor of New York and presidential candidate, very very wealthy by inherited wealth, um, and very close to FDR. They had known each other since they were teenagers. And FDR had sent him to London to liaise with the Brits, and he became very close to Churchill as well. So he was sort of a uh, focal point to to help grease the skids at this conference. For the British, um, these people are, uh, certainly for Americans, totally unknown. Um, And some of them are increasingly unknown, I think, for British listeners. But 
one of them who is known uh, is Alan Brook. Mm -hmm. Alan Brook was the uh, uh, the uh, essentially Marshall's counterpart in the British Army, uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, and um, a, a very intelligent uh, man, um, incredibly uh, uh, stern and uh, tough on on his subordinates. Uh, but universally respected, um, very sure of his own opinions. Um, and as we were chatting before, uh, was of the very clear view that anyone who differed with him was simply stupid, that uh, there was no difference between having a different opinion and being dumb in the mind of Alan Brooke. But I think he is the star of the book. I, I, I greatly admire the man. That's interesting, because I really came away from the book with a deep distaste for him. Huh, uh, um, and realize that uh, I, I, Brooke is uh, often cited as keeping Churchill on the ground and um, et cetera. Uh, I think that Churchill was necessary to make Brooke work as well. I think a, uh, a weaker prime minister and Brooke as chief of Imperial General Staff would have been a disaster. Um I I, uh, I I I'd have you'd have to press me about why I think that, but that's why. Also, it, the um, I have to say we'll talk about this in sources. His diary was started in the form of, as I understand it, from World War II historians, was um, started as a long letter to his wife. Yeah, what and he so, did. So it's very intimate, uh, and he's very he discusses lots of things. It's very much written to someone with whom he is intimate. Yeah, what he did was he uh, he bought in bulk um, a whole collection of diaries that had been given out to passengers by one of the cruise lines, <laughs> and uh, he began it. Uh, he really wrote it as a as a, a in the form of a letter to his wife every day, mm -hmm. every night when he got done with his day, he would write something, and it's very very candid, uh, and he has a very dim view of almost everybody. Uh, that he that he worked. other than himself, um, yeah, other than himself, yeah. Uh, uh, and, it, and even when it was published while he was still alive, and and Churchill was still alive, uh, in a in a really a balderized version, it caused a scandal, um, in it for its candor, right. uh, and uh, but it has a um, the force of it has a gravitational power which could attract a historian like a moth to flame. So I I'm I'm curious about getting to that later. Um, so. Char uh, John Dill, who is now like completely forgotten, but to my mind is actually the hero of the book. Yeah, well, he's he, you could definitely say that as well, and he is in 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 an important way. He was a very highly respected uh, senior member of the British military. Uh, had also been chief of the Imperial General Staff, and the problem was that he was cautious, careful. Um, and uh, very measured, whereas Churchill was the opposite of all those things. And Churchill thought he was too cautious and too slow uh, and replaced him with Brooke. But he became an absolutely essential link <clears throat> between the Americans and the Brits uh, because both sides liked and respected him so much and trusted him. And he was the one guy that both sides could go to and find a way to broker their differences, which is what happened at Casablanca. It's key to explain, it's a little bit foreshadowing, that they had created this combined chiefs of staff, which is a completely innovative new 
organization in history. Mm-hmm. And it was based in Washington. And Dill essentially was moving sideways to be part of the combined chiefs of staff in Washington. Yeah. Well, Dill uh, was, well, when, when Churchill uh, came to uh, Washington immediately after Pearl Harbor in a battleship, <clears throat> brought Dill with him and left Dill in Washington. Dill was sort of the permanent liaison between London and Washington, and thereby became close with Marshall, particularly very mm-hmm. close friends, and with many other senior uh, American officers, and was therefore in that unique position to be liked and trusted and known by both sides. Mm-hmm. And what, as well, I mean, and he also has a unique position because I think ultimately he's the only British senior officer who understands Americans and gets a better understanding of the United States which, as we'll discuss, the ignorance of both sides about each other's two right. common c- countries with sharing the same language is really extraordinary, but there are certain cultural reasons for it. Um, let's get to Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, uh, lots are known about them, but um, I'm curious about their personalities as war leaders. I think uh, in a weird way, Churchill is, uh, Roosevelt's less known as a war leader, but also as interpersonal politicians. And I mean that, by the way, they relate to you one-on-one or in a small setting, since this is, as I said in the intro, is a sort of summer camp. It's a bunch of small rooms and lots of time outside and activities, but it's also a strategic seminar. So this is how politics is being done on this in a very, in small rooms amongst very senior and intelligent people. Yeah, well, Churchill and FDR did not participate in the conference per se, did not sit at the table with the military brass as they hashed things out, except on two occasions. They had what they called a plenary meeting twice, where FDR, Churchill, and the rest did sit together and go over what had been decided, essentially, uh, and and tweaked it. But uh, what they did do is, throughout these 10 days, they saw each other constantly. They had breakfast together often, lunch, dinner. Um, Churchill would go over to Roosevelt's quarters and they would schmooze and and uh, try to work each other, basically. I mean, they were, really were friends. They respected each other highly. Uh, Churchill at one point, uh, not at Casablanca, uh, said that uh, he was very glad to be in the same century as Roosevelt. Uh, they were two towering figures, uh, but both were master politicians And uh, there's an interesting yin and yang here. Uh, They were friends, but they were also rivals, uh, not only for strategic decision-making, but you've got FDR, the liberal anti-colonialist, and Churchill, the very conservative imperialist. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting mix. And And we see them them in private in this book. It's a very different view of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Churchill likes to go around and stick his nose into everything. Um, he likes to be, he likes to read a lot. He dictates lots of minutes. He writes things like action this day. These, these are, these are known. Roosevelt isn't like that at all. Yeah. Churchill was, well, first of all, Churchill had been into military strategy since he was 14 years old and had had gone to Sandhurst and, you know, had written, I forget, I think it's more than a dozen books on military history. Uh, So he was steeped in it and thought he was uh, as good at it as any of his generals. Um, FDR was not of that mold. He had a you know a passing understanding of military issues. And certainly as the war progressed, he learned more. But he was not hands-on when it came to military decision-making, uh, deferred to Marshall primarily, 
and um, was wise enough not to try to, you know, steer a ship that he didn't know how to steer. So mm -hmm. that's a really big difference between the two of them. It is interesting. I mean, as Assistant Secretary of Navy, that was he was steeped enough in that that he uh, he used to refer and what was I think you say in cabinet meetings he would refer to the Navy as us, much to Marshall's consternation. Yeah, um, he, Marshall asked him, "Could you at least stop calling it us <laughs> and them when we talk about the Navy and the Army?" But uh, but also the way that uh, Roosevelt, I think, it's, is um, the greatest. I mean, this is a compliment. Devious politician of the 20th century, Lincoln be, being maybe that of the 19th, in that he can find a path through a confusing tangle of problems and complications. He's also spectacular. I mean, I don't think anyone is his equal in picking people to do jobs. Uh, it's really quite incredible how he staffs the war effort beginning in 1940. Um, and this is a great gift of his, but it's also a weakness because he never He'll always get another person to do something that, say, the Secretary of State ought to be doing. Um, so he has all these various lines and threads that do run from him. Um, and this is part of his sort of strategy of indirection, which I think extends to everything in his life. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good summary. He uh, He knew what he didn't know. And he knew that he needed to put responsibility in the hands of people who did and um, had a very good sense of that sort of thing. You know, famously, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court justice uh, and a Civil War veteran, it tells you kind of how close really those two events were, um, was still alive when FDR was president in the early years, and famously said that uh, FDR had a, a second-class mind and a first-class temperament that he knew how to deal with people, that he was bright enough, but not brilliant, you know, in an intellectual sense, but knew very well how to manage and how to lead and how to delegate. And Churchill was not nearly as good at that as FDR was. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, there's an opacity about Roosevelt that comes through your book that um, people don't really know he can, and de Gaulle is so shrewd. God, de Gaulle is so smart. De Gaulle, in just a very limited uh, time with Roosevelt, really understood him, I think, better than lots of other people that describe Roosevelt. Um, the way that he's just agnomatic, and you don't know what he's thinking, and how he can disguise his thoughts with charm, and he can chat with you for 30 minutes, and the meeting's over, and nothing has happened. And that's it. He's, yeah, well... I'll tell you what, in a room full of uh, A-plus egos, uh, Charles de Gaulle beat them all in that category. The, the guy thought he was divine, uh, almost. Uh, Churchill used to call him Joan of Arc, uh, and not in a complimentary way. Uh, but he was very, very, uh, very, very intelligent and knew, as just as you say, uh, knew how to play people. And um, he's at uh, Casablanca yeah. as well. And FDR and Churchill are both, first of all, trying to get him to come, which he wouldn't do at first. Uh, and, um, you know, at one point, Churchill says uh, he behaves as if he were Stalin, you know, with 100 divisions behind him. And he had very, very little actual political, uh, rather military power behind him, but a tremendous personality and fame 
uh, in France itself that he played like an expert. So there are a lot of antecedents to Casablanca. Um, Briefly, what are the first meetings between the two chiefs of staff um, following Pearl Harbor? And how does this lead over the next year to the, the conference of Casablanca? Well, very briefly, uh, Churchill and FDR had first met uh, early in the war before the United States came in uh, in Newfoundland uh, on two battleships and um, their their chiefs of staff as well. But apart from that, their first really serious meeting was in the wake of Pearl Harbor when when the Brits came over uh, immediately to uh, confer with the Americans. And in the course of that meeting, it became which was also a multi-day meeting. It became very clear, if it wasn't already, that the British were far more sophisticated, far more experienced, uh, far more steeped in the actual practice of war than the Americans were, and um, pretty much blew them away on strategy right from the beginning. But what Marshall, the great organizer again, what Marshall managed to pull off, much against British uh, will, was this combined chief of staff uh, system, where um, they would... um, basically make policy and strategy together, not only for themselves, but also for the Dutch and the French and everybody else that, you know, the resistance movements and such that were working with them. And uh, that's the system that carried off into the Casablanca conference. Now, you know, chauvinist or patriotic Americans are going to be really offended at the idea that we were bad at this. I mean, we had sent a million people to Europe. We had the second largest Navy in the world. Why were we so bad at this in 1940-41? What was the what, what were the sort of reasons within the U.S. military that we were bad at this strategy stuff? Well, I, I think uh, first of all, um, the Brits had been at war with Hitler for a year for a year alone. Okay, and uh, you know had learned a whole lot as a result of that. Secondly, they had three hundred years as a world power behind them with all of that sort of depth and history and the rest. And the Americans had only really relatively recently appeared on the world stage in an important way. And they were educated differently at their academies. Uh, They had sort of different perspectives on things. Uh, The Brits were steeped in strategic thought and military history. The Americans, not so much. And you got to keep in mind, too, that there'd only been a skeleton army before the war began, very small Uh, I forget, like 20th in the world or something in size. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, it was just sort of uh, a uh, 300-year-old world power dealing with a kind of upstart power that just beginning to understand how those things worked. Yeah, I'm I'm less impressed with the 300 years than the previous 20. Yeah. Um, uh, The, um, you know, when Grant, I mean, when Sheridan uh, went to the Franco-Prussian War as an observer, I mean, his cables are very interesting because he's completely disgusted with the Europeans mm-hmm. and what they think they know. Um, mm-hmm. Their logistics are simple, so simple compared to work operating in the Mississippi Valley. Um, their armies are okay. If you have mass conscription, sure, they're big, but the 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 problems are uh, are, are simpler. Um, the uh, but it, it, it's it's worth pointing out. It's always worth pointing out the U.S. Army in 1939 is is 17th in the world. Um, mm-hmm. uh, armies like any institution are capable of forgetting a great many things. And um, it's really the work of almost subversive officers like George Marshall that keeps certain memories alive of how you how you maintain and direct the operations of a massive 
um, army in Europe. Otherwise, um, the American army, its tradition has been since the Civil War to be a, a constabulary army, a gendarmerie. Um, yeah, and, and when the hot, when the when the heat gets gets hot enough, you, you just raise an army, and yeah. uh, you know you do it very quickly, and then you just go bang the enemy until he gives up. That yeah. was essentially the essence of it. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this points to the other cultural problems. Uh, it's really interesting to me how um, few. Um, well, I don't think any of these American soldiers had served with the British Army. But several of them, you you mentioned, I mean, for Patton famously had studied at the French Military Academy. Several of these guys had studied at the French Military Academy. Uh, a freak like Albert Wedemeyer had studied at the Kriegs Academy, but none of them had studied at the sort of the, there was a joint chief, uh, there's, there was an advanced staff college, I believe, by that time in Britain. Sure there was, um, but none of them have studied there. Um, so they have the... The U.S. Army up until that point has really been, since the time of Napoleon, since the time of Lafayette, has really been a Francophiliac organization. Um, the language that they speak is French, not German. Uh, they don't, and they don't certainly don't speak with English with an English accent. They might ride horses and things, but what they're really concerned about is what the French Army is doing, and what the British are like is really opaque to them. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't thought of it, but I think you're right. Uh, you know, the the other point to keep in mind on this is that unlike today, where everyone's instantly linked and, you know, we're, we're all on the internet together and we're all in satellites together and television and everything else. In those days, there were really two distinct cultures, you know, the British culture and the American culture. They still are, but much more so then. And uh, they were not comfortable with each other. That's I think right. there were still memories of, uh, as one American officer said, he'd been taught that the British were red-coated devils. And uh, it took him a while uh, associating with them to realize that they were not. So um, they were really not uh, uh, brotherly in the beginning. There was a lot more sibling rivalry than there was brotherly love between the two groups. Yeah, and the... English are, and this is, you know, I, it's not too surprising to me that this exists in 1941 because, uh, you know, I lived in Britain and, you know, Brits are still ignorant about the United States, even though they read a lot more U.S. news than we read British news. But the um, it, the lack of interest in what the United States is actually like, and also I think the lack of interest in American industry, I suspect that's also probably many of them, I, I suspect Alan Brooke was also really uninterested in British industry, but they had no understanding of what just a year later America would be able to do. Um, yeah, even in, I, I just, I had read this, this anecdote in already. So in September, 1942, when Zhukov, I think, arrives at the Battle of Stalingrad uh, he's being driven in an American Jeep. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I mean, that's just nine months after Pearl Harbor. And already the Soviet Union is up to its gills and Studebaker and Dodge trucks and Jeeps and then right. everything else that goes with them. And there's no understanding. I mean, Alan Brooke, I think what I, what I would say my criticism of his is he, he doesn't believe in Clausewitz. He doesn't see, he doesn't understand the importance of politics to strategic aims. He divorces them often. Uh, and uh, there's no understanding, it seems, on the British chief of staff of American industrial capacity and what that will mean for the war. 
Well, I'll tell you a, a, a line that sticks in my head from uh, from Marshall's reminiscences of the Casablanca conference is that the Americans were highly suspicious of the British, uh, always ready to believe that Albion was perfidious, as Marshall says. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, the British didn't apparently feel that way about the Americans, mm -hmm. Marshall says, because they didn't think we were smart enough or new <laughs> enough to be treacherous. So uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's really uh, Doug, Douglas MacArthur was obviously not in the room, right? Um, <laughs> so they really had to learn how to deal with each other and a yeah. lot of cultural tension. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's move on to the uh, why did they in the end decide they had to make? You know, as we'll see, it's an incredible journey for FDR to make from Washington D.C. to. Casablanca and Morocco. Why? Why did they have to meet like this? Other than the fact that both Churchill and Rose and FDR love the adventure of it. Well, I think you know what comes to mind immediately is um, what we're doing right now. Uh, Zoom meetings um, always has a bit of distance to it, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've given a lot of book talks on Zoom and and many more in person, and it, it's night and day. You know, when you have people sitting with you and uh, living with you da daily, it's a whole different experience. And in fact, you know, the prior conferences had been on somebody's home court, mm -hmm. you know, either in London or in Washington. And when it was over, you know, the home court went went home and the uh, or to their office and the visitors, you know, went to their hotels and that was it. But at Casablanca, they lived together for 10 days, ate together, drank together. Uh, really got to know each other and friendships formed and a lot of those sort of barriers broke down. And I think that was an essential part of the success of that meeting. So at what point did they decide to do this? Um, a couple of months before the conference. Um, it, you know, it's hard to get into any of this without taking too much time. But in essence, the Americans and the Brits had just taken almost all of North Africa. And uh, Montgomery had pushed Rommel, you know, west from El Alamein. And uh, there was still uh, the war continuing in Tunisia at that time. But essentially, they were in control of Morocco uh, and Casablanca, other than the German bombers that had hit Casablanca two weeks before, amazingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they decided they needed to get together somewhere physically. And that would be the best place to do it because the field commanders were within a short flight of Casablanca in Europe, and they could relatively, you know, more easily gather there uh, in a war zone uh, than they could uh, in Washington or in London. And uh, they felt like they needed to get down and really come to grips with all these strategic issues. So the levels of preparation are very different. Vastly different. Um, in Which is key, case, key, key, key moment in your book, really. That's what it all comes down to this, I think. Yeah. It, you know, in, in typical British style, they had this tremendously uh, sophisticated organization with overlapping layers of committees and analysts and staff, very cooperative, you know, intelligence cooperated with operations and all of this. And the army cooperated with the Navy. There were certain tensions as always, but they were very well organized. And they had spent weeks preparing for this meeting, um, hashing through every scenario, preparing position papers and the rest. 
the Americans treated it almost as if they were going to a, you know, a church board meeting and, you know, they'll sort of wing it when they get there. Um, and it's uh, it showed up uh, in the results. Uh, the Americans <laughs> brought eight officers there. The Brits brought about 70 uh, and a communications ship. So they were just vastly more prepared and and better, you know, better to impose their will on the Americans. Yeah. Yeah, they brought, I mean, they brought a ship. Right. And George Marshall basically shoved his valise full of papers and brought a couple of, you know, juniors and that was it. Um, That's extraordinary. Yeah, they brought three plastic three-ring binders with them. One of which was was about places they'd see and people they'd meet. (laughs) The Brits brought a communications ship jammed full of every possible you know document and uh a war office uh memo they might need with instant communications with london so they just overpowered the americans is what it came down to yeah so how did uh roosevelt make the trip because this is briefly how does how, how does that come about well keeping in mind that roosevelt was disabled and mm-hmm. uh in a wheelchair uh, and 61 years old, which in those days, I think, is the equivalent of 75 years old today with mm-hmm. medicine and health and the rest. Uh, and so there's that. But uh, he it was about a four leg journey, as I recall. He, mm-hmm. They took a train from Washington to Miami and then flew across uh, the Caribbean and then and then across the Atlantic in these great Pan Am uh, flying planes, uh, flying boats, they called them huge, mm-hmm. luxurious uh, uh, sh- uh, uh, planes that were really more like a cruise ship than a plane, you know, with wings, a, a cruise ship with wings. Um, but it was an arduous trip. Um, and uh, along the way, they uh, stopped in Bathurst in West Africa, which was a British uh, colony. And Roosevelt saw up front for the first time the appalling poverty uh, of the people that, you know, uh, lived there. Uh, which only incensed him further against uh, colonialism. So he came to Casablanca full of vinegar uh, on that issue. And they talked quite a bit about that as well. Uh, But it was a long trip for him. And it really took a lot of courage. There were uh, German submarines, you know, with anti-aircraft guns along the way. There were um, Luftwaffe, uh, you know, was, was in range of Casablanca, had bombed it two weeks earlier. And it was really quite a daring brave thing to do to get there at all. What are the various points of decision in the conference that you think are particularly important? These are sort of the little, these are in, in effect, if this is, if we think of the, a 10 day, you know, battle, mm-hmm. uh, these are the moments of decision within the battle. Well, the two biggest issues were uh, first, uh, not necessarily in order of importance, but first, what relative weight of resources are we gonna devote to the European war as opposed to the Pacific war? Uh, That was one of the two big issues. The second was um, how are we gonna proceed in Europe? Are we going to load up and cross the channel as soon as we possibly can, which is what the Americans wanted to do, or are we going to take control of the Mediterranean first and then work our way up the edges of the uh, of the Axis uh, powers and weaken them to the point uh, where we can build up our own forces and take them on in France 
um, in a way that we have a chance to win. Because the Brits were convinced that there was no chance to do that successfully for at least a year, if probably more. And uh, those were the two biggest issues. There were several other important but lesser issues. Mm-hmm. And this and this is, I, I know you say, and probably more, because this is always, I mean, this is where Marshall eventually loses it with Brooke, is yeah. the idea that we're not going to invade Europe until 1945. Right. Uh, uh, the, and he, and he loses it at, at what he sees as, as misdirections and uh, from the strategic, let's get all fancy, the Schwerpunkt. The, the the where German power is, which is Germany. It's not in Greece. It's not in Italy. It's in Germany. Right. And uh, anything else is a distraction. Um, so this is a, it's a question of resources. Um, on, on It's also a question of um, what's politically possible, because it doesn't seem to me, I mean, the Americans are, are as naive as they were in 1917 about the capacity of a brand new American army to go into France and win through superior marksmanship or or in morale guts yeah yeah and guts yeah um and the on the other hand the uh what i referred to as brooks refusal to connect strategy to politics he doesn't understand what's politically possible for an american war leader when you've been bombed in pearl harbor first not by right. not by nazis but by japanese right um Well, um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, all that's true, but the other thing to keep in mind is that in typical American style, sort of in the style of U.S. Grant, Mm. the, the, the driving military theory was you assemble the biggest, toughest army you can, and then you hit the biggest, toughest enemy army there is and just keep pummeling them until they quit. I mean, that's a simplification, but that's the essence of it. It's really unfair to Grant, which I mean, because I note in the, in your, in the record, you know, but, but go on. Okay. Well, we'll, like, but uh, (laughs) take Grant out of it. That was the basic American approach in 1943. Uh, Grab him by the nose and kick him in the ass, as George Patton said. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, In fact, Patton was at the, uh, at Casablanca. Yes, he was. At one point told one of the senior British officers, What's all this planning? Where's the enemy? Let the dog see the rabbit. Let's just go get him. <laughs> he, uh, that, that is so, uh, he was lying. Um, anyone who had served on the Third Army staff would have rolled their eyes at that because, of course, uh, Patton was a meticulous planner. Yeah. But he was he was obviously trying to put a little, he was putting his boot in the uh, British's back, Britisher's backside. Right. Well, it's, it's, his, it's his persona, too, that he projects. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, at one point, he wrote home to a friend and he said, there's this big conference going on here. And thank God I'm not directly in it. I just want to go out and kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that sort of, though, was the mentality overall of the American army at the time, I think, uh, at the senior level. Whereas the Brits, you know, had crossed the channel before and didn't do too well with it mm-hmm. in 1940 and had been badly burned and barely got out. Uh, and, and, and all of them are survivors of 1914, 1918. Exactly. And that's, I mean, and you can see that based. you see that in Brooks' diary uh, in the accounts. I mean, he is just haunted by it. He's also haunted by his failure in 1940, by yeah. uh, and his and his his you know his victory, quote unquote, of being evacuated. Um, but he's haunted by what had happened to you know his I think one of his brothers. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, his older brother was killed in the first week of the war. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had all lost. I mean, you know, you think of the everybody lost, everyone lost. Everybody. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you got to remember that, too, that 
At the time of the conference, not a single American had fired a shot in Europe. Okay, mm -hmm. we weren't there yet. And uh, the, bo the bombing had begun, American bombing, but only of French and Dutch military targets. They hadn't gone at Germany yet. So not a single American bomb had dropped on Germany. Not a single bullet had been fired by an American in Europe, whereas mm -hmm. the Brits had been fighting for three years. So it was really a different mindset and a different experience level. Mm -hmm. um, what? How do they end up deciding on what will happen? I mean, this is partly, um, it all comes down to tonnage. Um, this is, uh, it's uh, Phillips uh, O'Brien has pointed this out in his excellent book on World War II. It's all about industrial capacity. And industrial capacity really comes down to ship tonnage and where you can put ship tonnage. Um, and if you don't understand ship tonnage, if you don't understand the logistics, you can't understand how things uh, shake out in the in the Second World War. And the fact is there are lots of ships in the Mediterranean because that's where they've just been fighting. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the Brits, uh, part of the Brits assessment, which I think was accurate, is that uh, we have to open the Mediterranean before we do anything else. You know, if you visualize a map of, of Europe with the Italian boots sticking down through the middle of the Mediterranean and Sicily further still, um, and the Italian Navy was not not a negligible force. Uh, and the the Axis powers essentially controlled the Mediterranean. And they had to open the Mediterranean so that uh, British shipping didn't have to go all the way around the Horn of Africa, could go through the, the Suez Canal again. And as you say, quite accurately, shipping was crucial. And so that was a driving force be, behind the strategy of opening the Mediterranean first. The Americans understood that too. Um, there was a great logistical genius there by the name of Somerville, an American general, uh, who was not directly involved in the strategic talks, but was always a presence there reminding people, look, we have to get from A to B before we can do anything. And to do that, we have to beat the U-boat. We have to get rid of the U-boat in the Atlantic, or at least minimize it. Mm -hmm. And we have to open the Mediterranean and get the shipping going. That's absolutely right. And it, of course, by opening the Mediterranean, you're opening the Suez Canal, which means you're opening access to India, which then brings us back to Roosevelt's often rather, let's call it naive anti-colonialism rather than sagacious anti-colonialism, uh, where you can see that as you're, it's just the British are concerned with propping up their empire. Yeah, well, you know, some of them were were quite overtly concerned with propping propping up their well, yeah, because the Japanese are about to invade. I mean, they're on the they're they're you know, they're stopping they're they're fighting them in the hills of Imphal uh, simultaneously. Yeah. I think with the conference. Yeah, in fact, an interesting character in the book is Randolph Churchill, who is uh, Winston's son, <laughs> the most probably the most insufferable human being in the book, and there, there are more than a few. <laughs> there are quite a few. You know, my favorite, my favorite, one of my favorite jokes ever was when uh, supposedly from Randolph Churchill's club. Uh, when he was reported to have had a tumor removed, but the doctors had found out that it was benign. And someone at the club said, only part of Randolph that is. Exactly. That's a great line. Uh, one of the other Brits said that uh, Randolph was like was like a fungus <laughs> in their party who just corroded everything. But that's a digression. But Randolph was very openly of the view that Britain should be the dominant world power. He admired the Germans for aspiring to that. He aspired to it for Britain, including the United States. He had a very dim view of the United States. And he was not alone. So again, it comes back to this cultural tension between the two sides. Um, the French question. 
And this is interestingly, I read your book before I was I talked with uh, Ben Jones about his book Eisenhower's Gorillas, which is about the Jedbergs and going into France in '44. Uh, but really, and since Ben speaks the French and reads the French, it's really about the it's really about the political question of France. And um, what I got from reading Ben and then reading you and then reading you before and then reading Ben is that one of Roosevelt's greatest failures as war leader was not to take the French question seriously. And Eisenhower's greatest display of moral courage and initiative as a Suprema commander was to basically do what he felt should be done towards de Gaulle and towards the French, even though he had no Roosevelt was, as he tended to be, when he didn't want something to be done, he wouldn't talk about it or he would misdirect. Um, and you see the the seeds of that problem are in this lengthy attempt to figure out what to do with the free French and what to do with Vichy. And it's, it, it, it's politically, it's almost as bad as medieval Italy, which is like the 10 on the political complexity scale. Yeah, well, a sub a sub theme in the book is de Gaulle and mm -hmm. uh, his, his rival uh, Henri Giraud. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, another uh, very prominent French general. Uh, and the uh, the Americans backed Giraud as the potential leader of the of the French more than more than anything else. And the Brits were essentially backing de Gaulle, although with holding their nose all the while because de Gaulle had a stupendous ego and uh, was very, very difficult to deal with. But they knew that he had the charisma and the resounding name in France, as one of the Brits called it, um, to uh, to be able to lead those, uh, you know, those elements uh, into back into the war. Uh, they had to coax de Gaulle to come to Casablanca to begin with. He uh, resisted fiercely until basically Churchill threatened to cut him off. Uh, Churchill wrote a dispatch uh, to be sent to de Gaulle that said, that, well, part of what we're doing here is deciding who's going to lead the French. And if you won't come, we'll just have to get along as well as we can without you. <laughs> and uh, in the end, in the end, de Gaulle came uh, and could not have been more arrogant and uh, difficult to deal with. But uh, FDR had would have none of that, disliked de Gaulle personally, yeah. uh, distrusted him, thought he was going to be a dictator, you know, after the war in France. And... Um, but back to your point about his cleverness and uh, ability to deal with people, he met personally with de Gaulle twice and managed to charm him, which is really a difficult feat. Yeah. Uh, and um, it all turned out in the end, of course. But yeah, that the French were very difficult to deal with. I, I have to say, though, I, I, it's interesting that you feel that way, because after reading re between reading your book and Ben's book has made me really into a Gaulliste. Um, and realizing that uh, he's really he was really was an extraordinary man, and uh, the a room with Churchill, De Gaulle, and Roosevelt in it is a is a pretty amazing place. It, it is, and there's a there's a moment in the book toward the end of the book where the three of them are in the same room, and uh, FDR again. You know, part of it coming back to the personalities of these guys uh, is that um, FD, uh, FDR at this one three way meeting between Churchill, de Gaulle, and FDR, managed to basically con uh, de Gaulle into coming out with the other two out on the lawn of the president's villa, where the war correspondents were assembled at the end of the conference, and putting him on the spot 
so that he basically had to stand up and shake hands with uh, Giraud yeah. and uh, portray them as unified to the world, which were the banner headlines in all the papers, when in fact they were anything but. Yeah. And within a few weeks or months, I guess, de Gaulle had totally outmaneuvered uh, Giraud and pushed him out of power. And, and I, I would say it was extraordinary. It's it's talk about this interpersonal uh, the, as an interpersonal politician, it's extraordinary. I would say I would fault then FDR for believing that settled it, right? Um, because exactly. of course it didn't. And but he yeah. really wanted to. There's some part of Roosevelt that really wanted to believe that he had done it, hit checkmate, uh, game over. But it's not. The game is just beginning. Yeah, um, outfoxed him actually in yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about another thing where maybe FDR is a little too clever by half. Uh, and that is the question of unconditional surrender, which I think is what, if Casablanca is remembered, it's for being a declaration, it's for having a declaration of unconditional surrender. Right. That is not, <laughs> that was not the focus of the conference, uh, which is, I didn't realize. Uh, it was, uh, didn't come up much. It wasn't even uh, mentioned in the conference. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and yet uh, Roosevelt made it all about that. And when, when I say that Casablanca has um, reverberations into our contemporary politics, unconditional surrender now looms so large in the American political imagination. It's impossible for us to imagine wars ending as wars have traditionally done in almost all, in almost all, have ended, with the exception of World War II, with a sort of a request for unconditional surrender. Um, but yet you can see people with their unconditional surrender glasses on looking at Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq. You can list all Vietnam, we can list all these wars and comparing them to this the template of unconditional surrender, which has turned out to be so immensely important in the way people think about armed conflict now. Yeah, well, essentially, um, to, to, to do this as concisely as possible, uh, the notion of unconditional surrender and a demand for it never once came up in the military conference. Uh, the, Churchill and FDR discussed it privately at Casablanca and agreed that that was the policy they would pursue. But when this press conference was held at the end of the of the Casablanca conference, FDR announced it publicly that this was their position. Churchill's head literally snapped around when he heard those words because he was totally surprised by it. But he had no choice but to say, oh, I absolutely agree. And they went forth with that. But two things I'd say about it. Um, One is that if you think about it, there was no way on earth they were going to leave the Nazis in in charge of Germany if they won the war. And no way they were going to leave the warlords in charge in Tokyo. So there really was, was no other way to end that war than to eliminate them. And they weren't going to bargain with them. But on the other hand, there was a a significant downside to doing this. Um, The thought that both the Germans and the Japanese would fight all the harder if they knew there was no way out but unconditional surrender, which would mean a rope, you know, for the Mm -hmm. leaders and uh, humiliation for for everybody else. Uh, And the second was that... um, they thought it would undermine any chance of a coup, you know, against Hitler uh, or the the junta in uh, Tokyo. And as you know, of course, there was an attempted coup uh, in Germany uh, in 1945. Was it or 44? 44, 44 July 44. Yeah. Um, so there was thought that it it might undermine that. Well, but- it certainly it certainly made it more difficult. 
there's no question about that. I mean, uh, given the innumerable, apparently innumerable attempts to kill Hitler, but the uh, attempts by people in the July conspirators uh, or that group that existed since the late 30s right. um, that eventually became the July conspirators, uh, they had a hard time. Re- they had a hard time reaching out to the British and certainly they couldn't reach out to the Americans. Right. Uh, so, but I mean, my point, my assessment of it is, and, uh, and uh, it's not mine alone, I think the weight of opinion among World War II historians is that on balance, it was uh, probably more, did more good than harm. Uh, it, it increased allied morale. It made it clear to everybody that we're in this to, to just destroy these, these uh, evil people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not going to let that uh, survive this war. Um, so it's a controversial point even now, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, no American war had ever ended, you know, on, with unconditional surrender, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Grant's famous for, for demanding unconditional surrender from, at, you know, at one, at, at one place for 4,000 troops. Yeah, right. Uh, but U S grant and unconditional surrender became too tempting a, a coincidence yeah, that just stuck in i'm sure that just sticks uh, fdr is something of a civil war buff and yeah. so I'm, sh- I'm sure that was lodged firmly in his head oh he and, said it was yeah because uh, afterward uh he said that that he it popped into his head you know u.s grant unconditional surrender yeah and of course uh that's very different um rightly or wrongly it's very different from what lincoln uh imagined as a way of ending uh, the civil war well uh, i wrote was, a book about it actually yeah, yeah. that's right <laughs> <laughs> you did yeah um Let's talk before we uh, finish up. Uh, let's talk about sources and writing. Uh, you wrote a book about the Hampton Roads uh, Peace Conference, um, and you've now you've written about the Casablanca Conference. Um, mm-hmm. There, are, uh, for an 18th century historian, the Hampton Roads Peace Conference is awash in diaries and letters and mm-hmm. incredible variety of primary sources. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and I can only imagine that walking into the sources for the Casablanca conference just for these 10 days, just 10 days in January 43 is like, for me, I would be dazzled by the light. There'd be just too damn many sources. So how do you, how do you handle having too many sources? God knows what a classicist would feel. They probably pass out. Well, it, it took me two and a half years to write the book full time, seven days a week, because that's the kind of guy I am. But um, you're right that there's there's a lot of material and I had to leave a lot out. And uh, I had to persuade my editor at Simon and Schuster to make the book a bit longer than it otherwise would. I'm not, I shouldn't say persuade because uh, he was uh, he was very accommodating with it. But, um, yeah, it had to be distilled uh, to its essence. But, you know, part of what I found fascinating was the the diaries and memoirs uh, and letters of the participants who really added a lot of color and uh, personal observation to uh, what was going on. And to my mind, you know, the conference had been described elsewhere. The essence of it was well known and the outcome certainly was well known, but no one had delved into the personalities and their interrelationships and what it was like to be there and wrestle with all this and uh, bond, you know, as allies. And that was really what I was trying to, trying to get to. So as a writer, how do you, how many, do you have a count? Did you have like a, a sheet on the wall? Like I've got behind me one with lots of post-its as I try to keep things straight. Um, if you had a sheet like that with post-its on it, how many post-its would there be representing 
all the different personalities that you're juggling. And how do you do that without being boring? Because there must be a, a point where you realize if I give a page long biography of Alan Brook here, people will switch off. So instead you sort of feed it through a little bit about Brooke here, a little bit about him, that, and you feed it along. You do it so beautifully, just weave it together. So how did you, how do you do that? Did you plot this out chapter by chapter? I, I can't imagine you just sat down and, and, and wrote whatever came into your head. Well, here's what I do with, with every book I've written. I, I keep uh, a series of outlines. One is called, I call characters. And I'll put the name of each character and everything I find about that character, it gets plugged into that outline. Mm -hmm. This is on, on word, you know, on, mm -hmm. on word. Uh, the second is chronology. Mm -hmm. I put all the key events in their chronological order and it helps me focus and you see patterns and you mm -hmm. see one thing causing another. And the third is just a general outline on all the topics, unconditional surrender, crossing the channel, you mm -hmm. know, tonnage, all of that. And so as I do the research, I plug that all into those outlines. And when the when the research is done, it's laid out for me almost, you know, without having to uh, worry a whole lot about how to organize it. So you, and you don't integrate the outlines into one outline. You just refer to all three sort of simultaneously? Yeah. And then, for instance, you mentioned the characters mm -hmm. rather than, well, in the case of Marshall and King, I did do, I think, four or five page. You did. Yeah. rundowns on them but uh and brooke i started the book with brooke at dunkirk mm -hmm. because i think it tells you a lot about brooke mm -hmm. brooke was basically credited with being the the uh the reason why the brits were able to evacuate through dunkirk because he handled it brilliantly um and that speaks a lot about him and the other side of brooke is that he's a, a very very tough uh, military leader, but he's also got a very sensitive side. Well, I'll just let me let me read to you because you are able to do. I mean, this is this is because this is this is damn good writing. Um, you're able to sum him up in a in a beautiful sentence. The youngest son of an Anglo-Irish baronet, Brooke at 56 was a delicate man with a surgical mind, an effortless air of command, and the stare of a bird of prey, which is very nice considering that he's an ornithologist. Exactly. <laughs> you must have patted yourself on the back after that one and had a martini because well, uh, that was like, oh, yeah, you brought the two together. You didn't say he was an ornithologist, but you just when we get to that, we'll, you know, it's linked. Yeah. The other side of it is that, you know, he, he was an artist. He wrote beautifully mm -hmm. illustrated letters to his mother. You know, uh, he kept this diary where he'd be telling his wife all these very emotional, moving things. And then he'd turn around with this ruthless military command that, you know, was his responsibility. So Colonel Shrapnel, they call his subordinates. Shrapnel, yeah. Right. And he spoke so fast that he couldn't get the words out. He apparently had a very thick tongue. Uh, yeah, so he, he was he, not an orator. And uh, again, this sort of intolerance for different opinions. Yeah. Uh, he would often snap a pencil in half while saying, I flatly disagree. And so people would take a half a step back, like, who is this guy? He was uh, he was quite a complicated character. He really is. Um, so uh, how should we how should we end up thinking about the Casablanca conference? Um, is it, it it strikes me that it is a really tremendous transition point. I'm not sure that in the long history of the so-called special relationship, that England has gotten better of the United States since Casablanca Conference. I I once went. I tried to mentally record. Well, what 
have they got from us that we didn't want to give them since Casablanca? And I really can't think of anything. Like, uh, you know, Suez didn't end well for them. They didn't send troops to Vietnam, but that was that's about that is about it. Um, Casablanca was the last moment that England still had the upper hand over the United States. Yeah, you know, Rick Atkinson described the Casablanca conference as as a hinge on which the history of the world turned. <laughs> and, uh, talk about a good line. I, I, mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's a good line. And I think that's right, uh, that it was sort of the point at which the Americans first began to take the upper hand over the British because they were just beginning to get to the point where they could do that. The British saw that coming. The Americans saw it coming. And it was kind of the last time when the Americans walked into a conference with their shirt tails out, you know, unprepared, uh, winging it, because from there on out, they had learned their lesson and they came abundantly prepared. At one point, it was something like 30 officers, you know, at one of these conferences. And uh, it was kind of a maturing point for the Americans politically and militarily. And uh, of course, uh, you know, the Brits have never been dominant again. And uh, I think it's a it's a crucial point in the history of both countries. My guest today has been James B. Conroy. His book is The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Jim Conroy, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 